0: Want to position yourself for career success? Master the fundamentals of business with HBX Core, a three course online program developed by Harvard Business School faculty. Immerse yourself in real-world case studies as you dive into business analytics, economics for managers, and financial accounting, the three courses that Harvard Business School faculty determined were essential to becoming fluent in the languages of business. Boost your resume, grow your network, and advance your career with the HBX Core credential from HBX and Harvard Business School. To learn more Visit abouthbx.com/slash howstuffworks. Are you looking for
1: brand new episodes of a short How Stuff Works podcast that explains the everyday world around us? Then check out Brain Stuff with me, Christian Sager. New episodes hit every Monday and Wednesday on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, or anywhere else you get your
0: podcasts. Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from howstuffworks.com. Hey, welcome to Step to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And my name is Christian Sager.
1: So we're recording this a week after the election here in the United States. Uh And we're kind of reeling, not just from the election, but from the social media reverberations around it. And so Robert and I were talking about it and we said, you know... There's a lot of research. We see a lot of research fly across our screens about uh mental health and social media. Let's do a dive and figure out what we know so far about this because it seems like a topic at least from my social media feeds that people are interested in right now.
0: Yeah, I mean there's there's absolutely no escaping it. Um cuz here we are at the in the tail end of 2016 and uh you know just looking back on it Taking into account everything that sort of happened with social media, let's see, we had billions of tweets and Facebook status updates about the U.S. election as they were happening. Yeah, no, uh,
1: I, I don't know about you, but like everything I'm seeing, not everything, but I'd say a good 50 percent of the people in my feed are saying like, sorry, I've got to take a step away from this. On
0: top of this uh, political activity and political inactivity, uh, you also have seen, of course, a lot of uh, slanted and misinformed articles that have uh, made the rounds. And that is something that is being covered in the media currently. How does, uh, how does Facebook, how does Google as, uh, uh, as a, as a, as a manager of these different properties, as a curator of these properties, um how does, how do they factor into this equation? Um You know, and, and, and of course, on top of that, we also had a really uh, good and a really uh, depressing season of black mirror, just to <laughs> put it all in uh, perspective. Yeah. But, uh, you, but you know, we, we have to we come back to looking at social media and, and what its role is, this thing that we've created, this thing that we use, uh, every, every day. Uh, so how much of what we're feeling now and, uh, and, and these, um uh, these opinions, these, uh, these emotions that are being expressed, how much of that can we blame on social media itself? How much of it is just what people have always felt? Yeah. Uh, you know, it's just the, the immediate concern is always more pressing, more real. There's always more fire to it. So, uh, you know, are we just are, are we just blowing everything out of uh, out of proportion and simply looking for forces to blame? Yeah, I think, uh well, we're going to really get into it with the research today. But I'd just
1: like to say that I think that there's a certain amount of technological determinism that goes along with the idea that it's social media's fault, quote unquote. Yeah. Um. And from the research, the big lesson that I learned and maybe, you know, at, at the end, we'll revisit this is that it's not the medium, it's how we approach the medium and what we bring to it. Um before we start, I, th- I think, like, I just want to share a little bit with the audience. I-, I have personal social media policies already in place. I've talked about these on other shows before. I've probably talked about them on here before. Um, this one's a little weird. I only read Facebook, my Facebook uh, personal stream, if I'm in a bathroom. Yeah, I, that's my, my policy is I don't want to read it at my desk. I don't want to read it if I'm in my living room or my bedroom or if I'm on a bus, whatever. Uh, it stays in the bathroom (laughs) and, and whatever it brings up for me, if it's anger or sadness or frustration or even happiness or whatever, I keep it there. Um, now that's for personal stuff. We right. always advocate at the end of every episode, hey, visit us on social media. My job is to look at social media for stuff to blow your mind and how stuff
0: works and our other brands. Yeah. I wish I could step away from Facebook really, but it's, it's this thing I got to do every morning.
1: Yeah. Yeah. For work. Um, and I curate all my feeds, meaning uh, for both Twitter and Facebook. So on Facebook, if I'm, quote, friends with a person and they're posting things that upset me, mm-hmm. then I'll do the, I forget what the terminology is, hide or, uh, I, I basically make it so I can't see their stuff, but I don't say
0: to them, I hate you. I don't want to be friends right. with Right. Yeah. Anymore. There's, uh, there's unfollowing. There's, there's yeah. hiding. There's requesting to see less of somebody. Yeah. I mean, that's the, that's the thing is that everyone engages, uh, unless you're just a, a, like a, a rare and novice user of, say, Facebook or Twitter or what have you, there's always a certain amount of curation. You're choosing yeah. who to follow, then you're choosing who to unfollow or hide. The algorithm on Facebook is uh is is accounting for your preferences, and oh, yeah. then you're getting this custom stream of information. And uh on Twitter, I make use of lists tremendously. I
1: mean, I think I probably follow six hundred people on Twitter. And I actually follow less than a hundred people on Twitter because yeah. I have a list of what I actually look at. You know, I don't want to offend people by unfollowing them, uh, or you know, I use Twitter for networking. Yeah. Uh, I, you know, so sometimes if if I'm seeing stuff that's just overwhelming me, I say, you know what, you don't need to be in the list anymore. I'm gonna <laughs> gonna take a break from you for a little bit. Um, and all of this is, you know, in my posting, I just try to share things that I enjoy about the world. Or communicate with people who are in my areas of interest. Podcasting. Uh, We talk a lot about horror on the show. Things like that. And especially with people who are physically far away. I mean, I won't deny social media has been a great tool for me to meet people within our field and to make friends. Um, So, again, like, there are problems here. And we're going to talk about a lot of problems that have been found with the research in this. But I don't want to be technologically deterministic and say,
0: Facebook is bad. Yeah. Know? Yeah. I mean, I, I love Facebook as a, as a, as a method of, uh, sharing, uh, pictures of my, my son, pictures of my family, keeping up with, with, uh, with, with friends and family members that are far away. Yeah. Uh, and, and that's probably what I use it for, Facebook for the most personally, that and just sharing of things that relate to my interests. Uh, and then here at work, of course, for stuff to blow your mind, we share our content we yeah. we curate content that fits either our show brand or sort of the loose host brand. So if you follow our 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 Facebook feed, you'll see a lot of stuff that's not really attributed, but if something's like a little more of a Christian thing or a little more yeah. of a Robert thing, et cetera, then you're gonna see uh that we've we've tagged it or if the the statement on it is a little more in our individual voice, yeah, we we're usually tag try to it. put our initials or something like yeah. that, yeah, yeah. But, you know, it's basically comes to – really, I guess my approach to all the <laughs> the, the, the various social media uses is I, I use them as a way to share things that I think are pretty cool or I think are important.
1: Yeah, I remember reading a blog post when smartphones first started becoming popular, and it was basically like a, like a sort of guide for, for newbies on, like, what should you be posting to social media? You want to get involved in this? How do you do it? Uh-huh. And, the, you know, obviously we've gone awry since then but (laughs) it was basically what throughout your day as you go throughout the world do you see that's wondrous that makes you laugh or that you find interesting or insightful or me like do you physically see something take a picture of it share that and that excites you or if you read an article that you think is insightful share that something along those lines that's and that's for the most part, how I've always held it. Mm-hmm. I am absolutely guilty. Any stuff to blow your mind, listeners who have followed me on Twitter know that I like a good presidential debate. And I like to uh, live tweet and make jokes during it that that I'm totally guilty of that. But, you know, for the most part, I try to make it a curation of things that I find in the world that are great. One of the things I really like about your social media feed is your wife's a photographer. And so there's always these gorgeous yeah. <laughs> pictures of either your family or stuff
0: that she's shooting out in the world as you guys travel around. Yeah, yeah, I'm lucky in that regard, uh, because uh, the the in imagery is so important on social media. And, uh, even though I know less about photography and how to work a camera than virtually anybody I know, uh, my wife does all that and, uh, we're able to get a, a good image out there. But you know, that's, that kind of ties into a lot of what we're going to discuss today. Yeah. It's uh, the, the image, the representation, the thing that you put out there. Cause ultimately what we're getting around to with all of this is that your social media presence is kind of a is is a piece of you, but it is not the whole of you. It is a version of yourself, and then everything that you consume out there is a version of reality. So you have this yeah. creation of the subjective self, a creation of the subjective reality, and that is where we find ourselves here um, at the close of 2016 and the dawn of 2017. We're all performing
1: ourselves in different ways. Uh, it always makes me think of. Um, the great monologue play actor uh, Spalding Gray. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you've ever listened to Spalding Gray's stuff before, but he would give these long hour long monologues about events in his life. And people felt like they knew him. They felt mm-hmm. like he was their best friend. And he would say that person who you're listening to on stage, that's me, but that's not actually me. That's mm-hmm. a performance of myself. And he Committed suicide before social media really got big. Mm-hmm. So I would, I would be curious to see how, he, what his uh, opinion of Facebook or
0: Twitter would be, because I think that we're all kind of doing the same thing now. Yeah. I mean, it, I've, I've read very compelling arguments that really even outside of social media, where n- none of us are a particular individual, where there's kind of this chorus of selves. Right. right. With, some with louder voices than others, some with, uh, with voices that are trailing off as we age, some with the uh, voices that are growing louder. Um uh, but, uh, yeah, the idea that there's a particular you probably maybe doesn't even hold up in the real world or in social media. Oh yeah,
1: sure. Where that's, that's, I guess, uh, this is uh, the hippiest thing I'm going to say on stuff to blow your mind. The beauty of humanity is we're a myriad of identities. Yeah. <laughs>
0: All right. Well, on that note, let's let's move into a little bit. Let's uh let's let's get into the meat of this uh, episode and uh, and discuss where we are with social media, where we what the research is saying. OK, so reportedly one in four
1: people worldwide are on social media and 42 percent of online adults are using multiple social networking sites. That would include both of us. hmm. Uh on average, Americans spend seven point six hours a month using social media. That sounds really low to me. Yeah. I would think it would be more like three hours a day or something like that.
0: Yeah, because there's there's a lot of of um of using social media while you're doing everything everything else, right? Yeah,
1: exactly. so I wonder if there's some misreporting
0: going on there or something. I'm not quite
1: sure. Um of American Facebook users log in daily. 40% of them log in multiple times a day. Uh, again, guilty. So I'm, I'm, even though I'm only doing it in the bathroom, it's multiple times a day. Uh, And a good starting point for this episode that I found was an article called Online Social Networking and Mental Health. It's written by a guy named Igor Pantic, and it was published in the Journal of Cyber Psychology, Behavior and Social Networking in 2014. So it's two years old. It's a little there's there's a little bit more research that's been published out there, Uh, but it's basically a review of all the research on this topic that was done up until this point. Uh, and so we're going to throw it in along with the research that we did for this episode. Before we get started though, let's, let's acknowledge it's difficult to assess social media's effects on mental health. Most of the studies that we're going to present here, they use an approach, a methodology of correlation analysis. And remember, correlation doesn't actually equal causality. So for example, we can't tell if Facebook causes low self-esteem or if people who already had low self-esteem are more likely to use it, we just we can't tell which is the cause and which is the effect. But regardless, there seems to be a relation, as we're going to talk about, between low self-esteem and Facebook. Um, so just keep that in mind as we're going through these
0: studies. Yeah. And some of the studies we turn to as well, like they're they're more general media studies. So they may refer either to an earlier mode of the Internet they may or social media use they may refer even to other media uh uh services out there or platforms such as television so as far as our social media age, the place where we're currently uh standing in knee deep uh it it all started innocently enough. Uh, the author, uh, Nicholas Carr, has a wonderful article uh, from uh, Ian Magazine published earlier this year titled The Worldwide Cage, in which he discusses the rise and, in a sense, the spiritual fall of social media. So he, you know, he points back to the summer of 2005, this being the time when when Web 2.0 really arrived and, and pumped new life and money into MySpace, Flickr, LinkedIn, and the recently launched Facebook. Carr writes, Quote, cyberspace, with its disembodied voices and ethereal avatars, seemed mystical from the start. Its unearthly vastness a receptacle for the spiritual yearnings and tropes of the U.S. What better way, wrote the philosopher Michael Heim in The Erotic Ontology of Cyberspace, 1991, to emulate God's knowledge than to create a virtual world constituted by bits of information? And uh, and Carr points to an August 2005 Wired magazine cover article that proclaimed the birth of a new world empowered by uh, what he referred to as the electricity of participation. And this is the quote from that particular article uh, by Kevin Kelly, We Are the Web. The electricity of participation nudges ordinary folks to invest huge hunks of energy and time into making free encyclopedias, creating public tutorials for changing a flat tire or cataloging the votes in the Senate. More and more of the Web runs in this mode. One study found that 40 percent of the Web is commercial. The rest runs on duty or passion. So we have this this. This idea, the electricity of participation it sounds great, right? It does
1: sound great, but it's also from the from the uh, inside of a media organization looking out. We know that this is something that comes around and around again. Uh, If you Google it, you can learn more about it. User-generated content is mm-hmm. the term uh, that is used to describe a lot of what uh, Kevin Kelly is talking about here now. Everything from uh, reviews on Amazon to comments on a YouTube video or every post on Facebook, right? Yeah. Uh, all of it is content that's generated that makes somebody money. Uh, but the but the people who are creating it, the people who are writing it or posting it or taking these pictures or whatever, they're just doing it out of their participation, this electricity of participation. yeah, um, and I can't tell you how many times <laughs> as I've been working in this business, every couple of years it comes back around again. What if we figured out some way to get the audience? to make something and then we can make money off of it.
0: Right. Well, and for me, the the electricity of participation, it makes me think, certainly you can think of, of all sorts of positive modes of, of, People getting involved, yeah. participating and creating great things, creating some of the, the the most amazing things in human history. But there's also an electricity of participation to say burning a witch or something. Sure. So, yeah. yeah. It, so in these cases, uh, particularly what Kevin Kelly was talking about, it's really summoning up the like the best high minded futuristic ideas of what this could mean. But his car lays out these notions were essentially blown up by, quote, overindulged rich guys, uh. Unquote, who often went a bit sensational in forecasting the coming tech utopia. So they based their predictions on the early web, which was a smaller system and it was populated by a smaller sampling of society.
1: Yeah. You know, I feel like the, the ideal here was that like the internet was supposed to become sort of like the modern era public coffee house where there would be civilized discourse and critical Mm -hmm. thought and everybody would respect one another. And hey, it's early days yet. Maybe it'll become that at some point, but for the most part, what we see is people
0: trying to express really complicated ideas in 140 characters or less. Yeah. Uh, I'll read one more quote from uh, from Carr here, but I and, and encourage everyone to check out the article uh, in full length. Uh, I'll include a link to it on the landing page for this episode. But he said, The culture that emerged on the network and that now extends deep into our lives and psyches is characterized by frenetic production and consumption. Smartphones have made media machines of us all. But little real empowerment and even less reflectiveness. It's a culture of distraction and dependency. Uh, so here we are. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We really have. I mean, it's, it's kind of
1: crazy to me when I think back on how in just a little over 10 years, we've just gone from zero to 60 with social media, you know? Yeah. Um, and this isn't to be like, oh, I'm older or anything like that. But, like, I remember getting my first iPod Touch and being like, oh, I can take this with me anywhere where there's Wi-Fi. At the time, I had to have Wi-Fi. And I can write an email or I can mm-hmm. take a picture or whatever, you know. And it was – it literally was like a sci-fi thing had happened and just dropped into my hand. And now it's just – Every day, you know, and it's not just every day for our generation or the generation before ours. I have friends who are baby boomers that are in their mid to late sixties, mm-hmm. and they're using smartphones and Facebook and Twitter just as much as the rest of us.
0: Yeah. it's a misconception to think that it's just a a tool for young people. Yeah, indeed. I mean, it's it's everywhere. It's it's th- throughout society, and and the the sci fi aspects of it. I can't help but think back to uh, to Dune. Frank Herbert's Dune, the, the idea of the Butlerian Jihad, where people rose up against against machines, again, and were empowered by this notion that thou shalt not make a machine in the likeness of a human mind, which uh, was never completely fleshed out in, in Herbert's books, but it lends itself to different interpretations. Either yeah. the straight-up Terminator robots are coming to get us idea or machinery technology has changed the way that we think too much, has changed the way that we interact with the world, uh, the way we process the world and that there is something uh inhuman about it that should be rebelled against. Well, I'll, I'll, I'm going to throw an idea out here and then
1: maybe let's go to an ad break. Uh, this is based on a recent sci-fi movie I saw. I'm not going to say the name because I don't want to spoil it. Uh, but we know there's a theory that language, different languages change the way we think. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So if you think of social media as a language then of course the way we think is going to be uh malleable
0: around that. Yeah. Absolutely. All right. Well on that note we're gonna take a quick break. And when we come back, we're gonna jump back into into the topic. We're gonna get into some more research, some more stats, and see where we are in terms of social media sanity. (laughs) The holiday's almost here. You don't have time to go to the post office. There's traffic. There's parking. It's going to be packed with everyone mailing holiday gifts and packages. So do what we do. Use Stamps.com instead. With Stamps.com, you can avoid all the hassle of going to post office during the busy holiday season. Everything you can do at the post office, you can do right from your desk. Buy and print official U.S. postage using your own computer and printer. Print postage for any letter or package the instant you need it. Then the mail person just picks it up. It's easy and convenient. Here at How Stuff Works, we use stamps when we need to send out the odd bit of merge or correspondence and we want you to try it as well so right now sign up for stamps.com and use our promo code stuff It's s-t-u-f-f for this special offer you'll get a four-week trial plus a hundred and ten dollar bonus offer that includes postage and a digital scale so don't wait go to stamps.com right now before you do anything else click on the microphone at the top of the home page and type in stuff that stamps.com enter stuff and start mailing things
1: All right, we have returned. Okay, so in the late 1990s, studies were originally published that indicated that the internet's use had general effects on our social relationships and our participation in community life. The findings here were that uh, increased time spent online related to a decline in communication with family members, as well as a reduction of the internet's user or the internet user's social circle, and all of this. led back to depression and loneliness. Let's step back from this for a second, though, and evaluate. These early studies weren't able to take into account the new ways in which humans were creating communication and social relationships outside of real life. Uh, And some of these studies really read to me like a long history of academia's phobia of new media when mm-hmm. it first comes up. Uh Think of television. Think of comic books even, right? right? All of them had this backlash when they had a surge in popularity. Now, for instance, these studies refer to social media interactions as being shallow and unable to replace everyday face-to-face communication. I agree that they can often be shallow. But there's also a possibility for meaningful, deep communication there that might not be facilitated in real life, especially for some people who maybe have uh, real life social anxiety.
0: Yeah. Or you're you're you know, you you find yourself uh, in an area where like minded individuals are not necessarily there or or individuals who maybe um, have a philosophy or have ideas that are beneficial to your identity Um yeah, I I always have to remind myself, you know, it's we shouldn't forget that there was there was this time not long ago when there was this definite weird otherness to online society, yeah, uh, and, and relationships. Like I remember, uh, <laughs> not to sound um, old or to sound like I'm trying to make myself sound like this was, you know, a vast, uh, you're the distance. wise sage. Yeah. 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 But you know, like what, 10 years ago or so or more like the, the, MySpace era. Yeah. Uh, you know, I remember when you, you maybe were less inclined to mention that you met your significant other online because that would, that would be kind of weird. Like oh, it's the yeah. kind of thing you would, in the best case scenario, you might make a, uh, a, a, an amusing rom-com about it, but it's like, what <laughs> you're meeting people online and dating them. Uh, there was a, a weirdness in discussing, uh, online friends versus real friends, like in, in maybe even processing it, like yeah. coming to terms with the fact. And I've certainly been there where, like the, the, there have been times in my life where I feel like the online relationships and discussions I'm having were definitely more meaningful than, than the ones I was having in the real world. Yeah. I had,
1: uh, I don't know. It, it, it's a, a profound experience with this, uh, that mm-hmm. definitely changed how I approach el- electronic media mediated communication, which was I was I am a recovering World of Warcraft addict. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and I've talked about this on uh on our uh sister podcast here, Stuff of Life before mm-hmm. with Tracy V. Wilson. Um we both played World World of Warcraft. I uh replaced my social relationships with World of Warcraft when I moved to Atlanta because I didn't know anybody. Mm-hmm. And my wife and I would spend, I would say, eight to nine hours a day on it. Um, and the people who were on that with us were our friends. And that was where we had social relationships and we talked about what was going on in the real world. And, mm-hmm. and it was, it, I, and I knew people who were, all, who were even deeper into it than I was. And they would say things to me like, uh, I like this better than the real world. I would rather be in here. And so we would, you remember all the articles that were coming out around that time of like, I like, I believe that there was one pretty infamous uh, world of Warcraft player who died and they had a funeral for this person in the game. and uh-huh. like Hundreds of thousands of avatars all showed up in this one location and maybe yeah. crashed a server or something like that. Uh, and I, I have to say that during that time I was depressed and was certainly addicted to mm-hmm. that game, Uh especially like when I read through the research for today's episode, I, I recognized behaviors in myself from that era. Uh that, that doesn't mean like I was like, oh, never gonna play video games again. You know, like right. we, we talk all the time on the show about video games and stuff like that.
0: But but immersing myself like that, the way I did it, it wasn't healthy. So do you feel like it was, it was more of a detriment than a coping mechanism? Cause, cause you can, I yeah. can also see like you could do the spin on it where you could say, hey, you, were, it was a, a kind of a lonely time and this was yeah. a social, um, umbilical cord to connect you to like a social existence. Yeah, it was both, frankly. I mean, like it was, it
1: was one way to connect me with people. I had just moved to a new city, uh, where I didn't know a lot of people. But then at the same time, it was also like the, the, uh, how do I put this? World of Warcraft does a really good job of, uh, stringing a carrot along in front of your face so uh-huh. that you, you have to keep playing, right? Yeah. And sometimes it became outside of the social relationships. It was just like, I have to be on to do the thing. I can't miss the thing. Uh, and man, did I see a lot of human beings have meltdowns in that game <laughs> too. <laughs> so, uh, it's just, it's interesting. I mean, also, uh, if you, if you go and look, I'm sure there's probably a hundred dissertations that are written about, uh, social communication and World of Warcraft, but that's just my personal experience with it.
0: Yeah. I don't have any personal experience with World of Warcraft, but I've certainly turned to games at times. Like I remember when the first Sims game came out. Oh yeah. I yeah. was at a, like a, kind of a, an, an unemployed, un, uh, unguided phase in my life. I want to say it was like the, it came out like the, one of the summers after I graduated high school and I just wasn't sure what I was doing, but you could go in and play this Sims game. And it was, um, it, it got surreal and depressing pretty quickly when you realize you're sending your fake people out for Uh job interviews and they're buying houses. And then you're like, God, what am I doing? And this, what am I listening to this, this awful ambient piano music?
1: Um, (laughs) do you want to hear a really, Uh, messed up story about the Sims that'll probably make you think less of me. Okay. Okay. Uh, and that goes for you too, audience. Uh, when I played the Sims, I got addicted to it for about a month or so. Uh And what I would do is I was in a, a job that I was very unhappy in at the time. And I used the Sims to construct my office a uh, f- floor plan exactly like my office was and then i would put sims in who were all of my coworkers including my boss who we all really hated at the time and i gave them personality attributes that were similar to what theirs were in real uh-huh. life and then i would occasionally do things like my boss would you know go into the bathroom and i would freeze time and sim- put a put a cement <laughs> wall in front of the door and and lock him in there for a week with no food huh. and that game fed into every, uh, like dark fantasy, you know, uh, and, and I would just sit there and, and laugh at it and it was cathartic, but it's also, whoo, looking back on it, that's some, that's some messed up stuff.
0: Yeah. <laughs> I, I certainly can relate to some of that with, uh, some of the Grand Theft Auto games, I guess the Vice City one that came out. I remember spending way too much time in that and it not always being a, you know, like a positive, uh uh, expression of oh, self. Yeah. Uh, this is
1: very West world now. Yeah. We're, yeah. We're
0: getting into that territory. Well, you know, if any, uh, Philip K Dick readers out there, if you've read the story, uh, the three stigmata of Palmer Eldrick, uh, there's this, uh, there's this little plot, I don't know if it's even a plot point, it's been a while since I've read it, but the, there's this thing that comes up. These uh, perky pat dolls are called that, uh, you know, that people are obsessed with and they build these little houses or that they, they buy these little houses and they fill them with these dolls and these dolls kind of yeah. live out their live out their own little lives and people, uh, you know, kind of live through them. Uh, I feel like that in a way like served as a, uh, is an, is a, an excellent metaphor for a lot of what's going on today with virtual worlds and, and the internet. Again, not to say yeah. that, that, that encapsulates all of it, not to discount all the positive aspects, but there's certainly a perky patness to it. Weird Easter egg that I
1: just, uh, figured out from you mentioning that short story. Isn't Palmer Eldritch the name of the bad guy in the strain? So that must be um, an homage to Philip Dick. I think it is, yeah. I think the the old uh, uh corporate guy who's huh. working together with the vampires. Gosh, how did I never put that together? It's huh. yeah, it's
0: strange. Anyways. All right, so let's let's uh, move on and uh, discuss some more of uh, the, the depressive symptoms associated with social networking.
1: Right. So after these 90s studies that were just sort of generalizing the internet, it led to studies in depressive symptoms that were associated with social networking. One study found a correlation between high school students and depressive symptoms. And the way they did this was by using something called the Beck Depression Inventory. Now, Robert, you want to give
0: us just like a primer on how that works? Yeah. So basically, this is a 21-question multiple-choice self-report inventory. So it's a common uh, psychometric test uh, for measuring the severity of depression, scoring minimal to severe depression based on questions such as... Uh, uh, which of, which of these, you know, expresses your feelings, right? Uh, I do not feel sad. I feel sad. I am sad all the time and can't snap out of it. Or I am so sad and unhappy that I cannot stand it. Yeah. And those would be like, a, you would score like a zero, a one, a two or a three, depending on which one you picked. Based on my Facebook feed in the last week, I am seeing a
1: lot of the last one. I am so sad or unhappy that I can't stand it. Um, and I don't know if that's hyperbole or. Or if it's what people are actually feeling or not, but these tools seem to be adequate.
0: Yeah. I mean, it, it comes to an important question. Like the expression of feeling is, is emotional reality. If you, yeah. if you, if you, you know, accuse somebody of, of expressing something and say like, Oh, you sh- shouldn't feel that or you don't feel that. Like that's, that's ridiculous. You yeah. Know? Right. It, it's kind of like a paranormal experience. right? Yeah. Right. I mean, right. It's still an experience. What an individual's experience is their subjective experience. Um, don't try and put this objective mold over how they should be feeling or reacting.
1: Yeah, I think we've said this on the show before when we've talked about like uh, the paranormal and science in relation to it. Mm-hmm. I may not believe in the paranormal, but I believe that the people who are experiencing it believe it. Right. And mm-hmm. so it's, therefore it's real to them. So when, uh, they used this study, they compared it to television, and they found that there was no correlation between television and depression. Other authors argued that this isn't true for older adolescents. It's only true for younger ones, that they get depressed when they're on social networking. So there's a possibility that different age groups react differently to the challenges of social networking. Then there's this 2013 study that found that that young adults' subjective perception of well-being and life satisfaction was possibly being undermined by social networking. The way that they did this was they would text message the participants five times a day for two weeks to evaluate at that point in time what their mental state was, what kind of social interactions they were having, and what their Facebook use was. Now, personally, I'm trying to imagine the challenges I went through in high school, Mm -hmm. being kind of a nerdy, geeky kid, and I can't picture how Facebook would have made my life better. I just I really can't. Yeah. Uh so, so it's that's tough for me to wrap my head around. But the the other tricky thing here is that researchers have found That Facebook creates altered perceptions of physical and personality traits of other users, leading us to incorrect conclusions about what their characteristics are. So, for example, when 425 undergraduate students at a state university in Utah were studied, they reported that Facebook made them think other people's lives were happier than theirs, which led them to constantly feeling like life wasn't fair. And that this in itself doesn't lead to depression, but those who are already predisposed to anxiety or depression may find that it negatively impacts their mental health. And there's still no conclusive evidence that Facebook causes depression. I want to reiterate that there's no, there's correlation, but there's not causation here Um, where we are in the infancy of these studies. There's still a lot more to go. Mm -hmm. People have started confronting this On Facebook or Twitter or wherever by writing about how they may look okay in their profile or their feed, but in reality, they're dealing with anxiety and depression and they're confronting that it's a curated version of reality. Even when we're being honest about the negatives in our lives, it's still a curated version of reality. So when researchers have tracked online behaviors, they've found that there are certain Facebook habits that accompany depression. For instance, people are more likely to focus on features that focus on depression tips and facts on Facebook if they're depressed. Well, that seems like a no-brainer. Yeah. But uh, they've also found that depression is related to having fewer Facebook friends. This one's weird to me. Location tagging. The whole geo-tagging phenomenon
0: yeah. is... Has a correlation to depressed users as well. Well, I guess you kind of have to be excited about where you are on some level to Mm. tag yourself there. Like I, I don't really use geotagging a lot, but Mm. if I do, it's probably because, say, I went to the zoo with my son and we had a good time, or we went to the Center for Puppetry Arts and we had a good time. You know, it's I, I'm I'm, I generally don't do it. Say at the doctor's office, right? You know, that (laughs) sort of thing.
1: Yeah. Um, And this seems like a good point. I want to remind everybody of something. Well, this pops up on a ton of how stuff works, programming, whether it's video or text or, or podcasting, something called Dunbar's number. Uh, we have a brain stuff episode oh, yes, about yes. this. The way it goes is like this. Uh, it's a study. First of all, there's a study that indicated that the average American knows about 600 people. Okay. Another study said, no, that's wrong. The average American only knows 209 people. Well, why is there such a difference? Well, it depends on how well you actually know them. So... In comes Robin Dunbar, who's an anthropologist and evolutionary psychologist from the University of Oxford, and he proposes that our brains are hardwired to have a cognitive limit on the number of people we know. This is based on the correlation between the size of a primate's brain and the size of its average social group. Now, for humans, Dunbar's number was 150 on average. This means you can only have stable social relationships with between roughly 100 and 200 people. Again, not conclusively proven, though, okay? But when researchers at Indiana University analyzed the history of 3 million Twitter users, they identified that 25 million of these conversations where people maintained actual relationships only occurred between 100 and 200 people. So this seems, there seems to be evidence that's leaning towards this, that, you know, yeah, I've got 600 people I follow on Twitter or however many on Facebook. Right. But I'm really only having relationships that are like quality communication with somewhere between 100 and 200 people.
0: Okay. But that's online, right? Exactly. Yeah. Well, and in
1: real life too, right? I mean, Mm -hmm. you have to consider a lot of the people Frankly, nowadays, a lot of the people that are part of your real life world are also your online
0: friends. Yeah. Yeah. And I think I certainly don't know 150 people in my real life right. travels. Yeah. Like, like I think about, say, for instance, uh, you, me and Joe. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, we work, we work together. We see each other. Like I see you guys more than I see, uh, like most of my friends. Yeah. So we don't, we don't actually interact like socially on social media all that much because right. we kind of don't have to. Yeah. Likewise, um, You've probably seen these, uh, these little clouds of terms that come up where people show like what they were Facebooking about this year. And, yeah. and, you know, it'll yeah. be the, the big Work, word in word the clouds. center. Yeah, the yeah. word clouds. So, so like I, I found this, this trend with a lot of people where like the thing in the center of their life was not their significant other. Right. And on one level, you might say like, Oh, well, why, why wasn't your, your wife, your husband, et cetera, uh, in the center of your cloud in big bold letters? Well, I think a, a part of that is that like You've the relationship with your significant other goes beyond yeah, it goes beyond yeah. Facebook. You see them every day, you're talking to them. Yeah. Uh so you're not having to tag them necessarily, you know, in a post all the time.
1: Yeah, I mean, my wife is one of the few people who's privy to what my actual life is like, right? Yeah. She knows about the ups and downs. Uh so I don't need to post to her. I mean, we do, we chat on Facebook occasionally and stuff like that, and make jokes, but like you know she knows what's really going on with me i know what's really going on with her so we don't need to have that mediation in between
0: yeah yeah so it, but sometimes we lose sight of the, that fact that, totally. that the the this the social realm and the social media realm is not the be all and it's not also, it's also not a one to one reflection of what our social life consists of yeah so let's also remember this.
1: There's other research that's out there that online communication with friends and family is associated with a decline in depression and can strengthen social ties to benefit mental health. So there's contrary views here. Uh, once again, I think it's how you're using the medium, not necessarily that the medium itself. Um, it, yeah, it. it, it So there's this 2015 Pew Research study. We bring them up all the time on the show. They're the, I call them the masters of surveys. They they do all the surveys and they've got all this data on, um, just, just contemporary life. Uh, and they did a survey to establish whether and how much social media is stressing people out. And to this end, they used a different scale. It's called the perceived stress scale to quantify how people were upset, maybe out of control, feeling stressed, nervous, irritated, or they were unable to cope with things in their lives. And these were their findings. Those who are more educated and those who are married or live with a partner have less social media-related stress. So that's interesting. That relates to what we were just talking Mm -hmm. about, that you've got somebody to sort of be yourself with, I suppose. The frequency of social media use has no direct relationship in men. And what they mean by this is that Men that they've studied would have the same level of stress regardless of whether they're using social media or not. But in women, the use of some technologies is actually tied to lowering stress for them. Huh. Uh, social media users may be more aware of stressful events happening to their friends and family, and they perceive higher levels of social support within these networks generally we see this as a benefit right it's mm-hmm. sort of like uh returning to the sort of uh what what's the term like a world village yeah. you know that kind of thing where we're we're interacting as if we do physically live in proximity to one another even though we don't so it's seen as having a benefit but But what if it comes at a cost? So the average adult they interviewed experienced five out of 12 possible stressful events solely through their family and friends on social media. So social media users are much more aware of major events in the lives of the people close to them. But also they're getting this surge of. All these bad things are happening. All these major, quote-unquote, negative events are happening. Oh, my God. But when you pull back and you look out at the lens, it's like, well, they're not all happening on your street.
0: Right. (laughs) They're all – they're just happening in the world. Right. Right. But it it comes back to cultivation, you know? yeah. And it uh, it reminds me of uh, mean world syndrome, which stems from cultivation theory. This is a social theory developed by uh, George Gerbner and Larry Gross of the University of Pennsylvania in the mid nineteen sixties, uh, and their whole focus was examining the long term effects of television. Mm-hmm. So very, you know, very different form of media, but uh, but 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 very related in many senses, because in essence the idea here is that TV was slash is cultivating our culture. Right. Uh, like I can't help but think of, you know, shepherd fairies obey and uh, John (laughs) Carpenter's they live, you know? Right. Yeah, Uh, certainly. The idea that TV is feeding our brains, that it's informing our minds both explicitly and implicitly on who and what we are, what sort of world we live in, cultivating viewers' conceptions of social reality. And it seems that, you know, much the same is going on in the social media age. We cultivate our cultivation to some degree, but we're still shackled to external views of social reality, social reality on individual, on the individual, on um, subcultural, cultural, international levels. What should my life look like? What should my body look like? What what should the world look like? Now I'm thinking
1: that what the world needs is John Carpenter to make they live, too. And it's all about social media and it stars the rock. And uh, you're more of a wrestling fan than I am. Who else would work in there? John Cena, I guess. Uh, yeah. Who's the
0: Roddy Roddy Piper of our time? There's not one. Uh, yeah. That's true. He yeah. can never be replaced. He can't be replaced, and and uh, he sadly passed away. Um, but yeah, we need a Roddy, Roddy Piper, somebody who's willing to to fight through the uh, subjective reality that mm-hmm. our um, that the social media and uh, and the media is uh, reflecting on us. Someone to passes the shades. Yeah, absolutely. So. All right. Before we get into whether
1: social media is, quote unquote, destroying our self-esteem, let's back up. What's self-esteem? It's defined generally as the evaluative component of the self, the degree to which one prizes, values and approves of or likes oneself. And it's crucial to maintaining quality of life. If you have low self-esteem, that leads to depression. It can also lead to eating disorders and addiction and other uh, health problems. Now, one explanation for a negative relationship between social networking and self-esteem is that self-presentation is the primary user activity there. And it seems like narcissistic behavior to us if we're watching it from afar, right? So a study of a 100 Facebook users at York University found that individuals with low self-esteem are more active online online promoting their own content but another study included groups of students par- who were participants and exposed them to first a mirror and then second their Facebook pro- profile and third a control setting and the results showed that there were positive effects on their self-esteem for Facebook uh Objective self-awareness theory basically suggests that any stimulus that causes ourself to become an object, like looking in a mirror, for instance, will lead us to a diminished impression of ourself. Now consider when you're looking at your own Facebook profile, you're looking at photos, biographical data, your relationship status, all of this. So some people theorize this may lead to a reduction in self-esteem. So again, we've got some contrary uh, research and points of view going on here. There's also something called the hyper-personal model, and it proposes that there are advantages to computer-mediated communication for self-esteem. The argument here is basically that online you have the time to select the aspects of your character that you believe will be viewed most favorably by the receivers of your content, when you contrast this to your real life interactions, you don't have the time to constantly present your most positive features to the people around you. So, social media may even spread happiness in some situations. So we we talked about that uh, Pew Research study that said that women find that uh, it increases their 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 happiness. Happy status updates encourage others to post happy status updates about themselves. And some, some researchers even worry that it could cause something that they're titling the epidemic of well-being that there's so heaven forbid, too too much.
0: Yeah. (laughs) uh, Of showing how great your life is in the world. Uh, this is interesting because this will this is something that will definitely come up uh, later again in the podcast uh, yeah. when we're specifically discussing uh, Facebook's uh, utilization of their algorithms. Oh yeah, uh, all in all. Uh, Again, this is super
1: complex. Uh, It doesn't necessarily seem that the medium itself is inherently leading to poor self-esteem. But the habits of being competitive, comparing your achievements with others, incorrectly perceiving others, as well as jealousy and narcissism can all contribute to negative self-esteem. Now, from my point of view uh you know my my education background is in communication. This all seems to relate to general communication theory and how interpersonal relationships are maintained and how conflict is managed it's just in a different way right but mm-hmm. but the general sort of way that uh, we model communication from one human being to the next still applies here. Uh, some studies even indicate that social networking sites may actually be a useful tool in identifying individuals with mental health issues. And I wrote next to this, you think after looking at my (laughs) Facebook profile for the last year, I think some of the people I know who might have mental health issues are starting to realize that themselves. But there are indicators that there's fewer pictures, less communication, but maybe they have a really long filled out profile and fewer friends. These people were more likely to experience social anhedonia while they're on social media, meaning that they did not have the ability to encounter happiness
0: from the activities in their life that they normally found enjoyable. All right. So we have this thing that, uh, paradoxically seems to make us happy and you know, help us live our lives. But then at the same time, just really pushes us to, to lows of, uh, of, uh, self-loathing or, um, you know, apathy and just uh, despair. Yeah. Um, uh, are we addicted to it? Are we addicted yeah. to this thing that makes us happy and miserable? Uh, it certainly wouldn't be the first uh uh, uh property.
1: Yeah, I was gonna say death, that. the sort. way you're describing it, it's just it sounds like all the other things yeah. that we're capable it of. Sounds like drugs, it sounds like drugs, it sounds like alcohol. Yeah.
0: So we're gonna take a quick break. When we come back, we will get into the social media addiction. Are you hiring? Do you know where to post your job to find the best candidates? Posting your job in one place isn't enough to find quality candidates these days. If you want to find the perfect hire, you need to post your job at all the top sites, and now you can. With ZipRecruiter.com, you can post your job to a 100-plus job sites, including social media networks like Facebook and Twitter, all with a single click. Find candidates in any city or industry nationwide. Just post once and watch your qualified candidates roll into ZipRecruiter's easy-to-use interface face. No juggling emails or calls to your office. Quickly screen candidates, rate them, and hire the right person fast. Find out today why ZipRecruiter.com is used by over one million businesses. And right now, our listeners can post jobs on ZipRecruiter for free by going to ZipRecruiter.com slash mindblown. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash mindblown. One more time, try it for free. Go to ZipRecruiter.com slash mindblown.
1: Okay, we're back. So the big question here on the table is, are we actually addicted to social media? Well, whether or not it's addictive has not been debated for very long in psychiatric literature. But what would define it is if social media users had a mental preoccupation with social media that leads to their neglect of other social functions, whether that's family or real life friends. In addition, they would suddenly cease they're online social networking sometimes, and that would cause signs and symptoms that resemble those of people abstaining from drugs and
0: alcohol. It's one of the problems, right, is that with addiction, you kind of have lowercase addiction and capital letter addiction. Yeah. So there's, there's the, there's the, 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 there are the little addictions that we talk about in life. Um, and then there are the big ones that, you know, a lot of us are fortunate enough to not have to, to, to deal with yet, yeah. uh, or at all. But then there are things that seem to sort of uh, uh, weave in that space between.
1: Yeah. I mean, for my part. Um, so I grew up in a household with uh, a parent who was an alcoholic and luckily they went through Alcoholics Anonymous. Mm-hmm. They're sober now. But I recognized within myself from that uh, experience, I have an addictive personality. It's something that I inherited. Uh, and so. Yeah, I'm always conscious, especially of things like this. I, you know, I mentioned that whole World of Warcraft thing earlier. That there's a possibility there for me to get too far into something like right. this if it has that addictive quality. Now, with social media, again, let's look at some of the research. According to Dr. Shannon M. Rauch of uh, Benedictine University, which is in Mesa, Arizona, one of the main reasons we use social media is to distract ourselves or uh maybe we're bored and we want relief from that boredom. So every time we log in, we're delivered reinforcement in the forms of likes and comments or whatever people communicating back with us. So when behaviors that are reinforced are repeated, it becomes hard to stop doing them, right? You're you're being uh you're given positive reinforcement for them. This is just like Pavlov 101. Uh, In addition, researchers at I believe it's Frey University in Germany found that this positive feedback correlation shows strong activity in the nucleus accumbens of our brains where we associate reward processing. So in 2012, a group of researchers developed something called the Facebook addiction scale to score Mood, Tolerance, Withdrawal, Conflict, and Relapse. And they tested it on 423 students and found that it was relatively reliable. What's worth noting here, though, is that there are a variety of activities that you can do on Facebook beside, quote-unquote, social networking, right? Like people play games on there. They're doing all mm-hmm. kinds of things. Facebook has made itself ubiquitous in our lives because it's not just social networking anymore.
0: I always forget that they have games. Like yeah. I don't get invites anymore to, like, uh whatever, you know. FarmQuest or whatever the, right. the latest thing is.
1: Yeah, it's never that was never my thing either. But I, maybe that's just maybe we're a different generation or something. Right, maybe they're really fun and we're just missing out. <laughs> yeah. Uh, another study adapted the Internet Addiction Questionnaire, which was a pre-existing document, to test Facebook dependence with students. And then they tested the sleep quality of these Facebook users. What they found was that Facebook dependence may be related to poor quality of sleep. What's worth remembering here is that we don't know if social media addiction is an actual disorder or maybe it's a manifestation of other mental issues. As it stands, the good old DSM, the DSM-5 is our our current one, I believe, which is the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders. It does not list social media addiction as an actual mental disorder. If it is an addiction, per the latest revision of the International Classification of Diseases and Health Problems, it would have the following symptoms a strong desire or sense of compulsion, difficulty con- controlling consumption behavior, and psychological withdrawal after reduction or cessation.
0: I can, I can relate to all of those. Yeah, me like, too. I think I've mentioned uh, on past episodes that when uh, it was January of 2016, when with my family to Jamaica, oh, yeah. and uh, our our crappy phone plan just did not work at all Mm -hmm. on, on the, on the island of Jamaica. Uh, so I just did not use my phone and it was, it was, it was maddening at first. Like I kept like reaching for my pocket to make sure it was there. And, and it took, it took a couple of days to sort of move through the idea that I was not connected to this thing anymore. Right. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, I know I've talked to Joe about this before.
1: Well, Joe, uh, not to speak for him here, but he, for the most part, doesn't use social media, I think, mm-hmm. because of a lot of the things we're talking about here, but he's definitely taken, like, internet vacations, you know, mm-hmm. where, uh, I, I've done this before, too, where you, you get, you rent a cabin in the woods somewhere, you have your phones, but you just don't look at them for a weekend or mm-hmm. something like that, and it, uh, can be cathartic. Yeah. Uh, last thing here, Dr. Cecil Andreessen from the University of Bergen in Norway has developed the Berg Facebook addiction scale and they use six criteria to measure this thing. What they found is that people who are already anxious and socially insecure are more likely to use social networking. So potentially Facebook addicts are using the site to gain attention and boost their self esteem. So it Mm -hmm. becomes this like vicious circle basically that like they're using it to make themselves feel better, but they're already insecure and depressed. So they're going to circle back around to that and then go back to the, uh, trough literally
0: yeah. for this reward, you know? All right. So let's, let's think about the children then for a minute, as we, we often do with the uh, technology and with the evolution of social media and the, and the internet, because you always have the, generation that came into it more or less fully formed. Yeah. And then there's the generation that's born into it. Uh, yeah. and I mean, that's just going to continue. Uh, you know, for, for us, it's like, oh, I remember growing up without the internet in the house. Other people are going to be like, oh, I remember growing up without Facebook in the house. And then it's going to be, I remember growing up with my, my own organic eyes as opposed (laughs) to these, uh, metallic implants that are now mandated. Google eyes. Yeah.
1: (laughs) Uh, yeah. So, uh, a a great quote that I found that I want to start this off with was from Time Magazine's Susanna Schrobstorf. Uh, she wrote a piece in time that was called the kids aren't all right. And it uh, is about general mental health issues in teenagers in America, but does discuss social media a lot. And she says in my dozens of conversations with teens, parents, clinicians, and school counselors across the country, there was a pervasive sense that being a teenager today is a draining full time job that includes doing schoolwork, managing a social media identity and fretting about a career, climate change, sexism, racism, you name it. Every fight or slight is documented online for hours or days after the incident. And it's exhausting. So again, I said this earlier, I can't imagine my high school experience, which I feel was challenging. Mm -hmm. I'm so glad I'm not in high school anymore. I love being an adult. Uh, how it would be made better by social media. And then I think about these kids. I, I thought about, uh, about you and Bastion. Cause you've got a son who's growing up in a world of social media.
0: Yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's tough to think about.
1: Uh, I, I worry about it quite a bit. So, we worry, you know, about things that we've already discussed here today, like, if social media is addictive, it's especially going to affect teenagers due to the social pressures to be involved in it. And as we learned previously, a study has shown that this could be damaging teenagers' sleep and increasing their risk for anxiety and depression. So teenagers require more sleep than adults, which we know this. So waking up to use social media in the middle of the night is actually really bad for their health. And this can subsequently lead to colds, flu, and even gastroenteritis. Another study that was done by Britain's National Citizen Service says that teenage girls seek comfort on social media instead of from their family. So this suggests that they experience more stress more often than teenage boys do. And that kind of lines up with that Pew research stuff that we were talking about earlier as well.
0: Yeah. I mean, I, I remember in high school just watching like, you know, six hour blocks of, of television. And that was kind of my coping yeah. <laughs> mechanism. Um, and, and playing magic, the gathering. Now you do all of that online. Um, hm You could do both online. You yeah. Can, yeah. At the same time, probably. <laughs> Now, we already touched uh, on, uh, you know, cultivation theory and uh and in uh, the way that the, the, the our cultivated ideas of reality then uh, manifest in our our own anxieties uh there's a there's a spin on it that's often referred to as thin world syndrome mm. uh and uh, in particular there was a, an article 2003 the effects of thin ideal television commercials and body dis uh, disfati- dissatisfaction and schema activation during early adolescence published in the journal of youth and adolescence by uh, Dwayne Hargreaves and uh Marika Tigerman, And uh, in the study, they presented two groups of girls with different sets of ads. One set with the undernourished women and one set without. So the results saw that girls who saw the ads with the emaciated models experienced immediate episodes of insecurity and distress about their weight. What's more, two years later, those same girls still reported greater dissatisfaction with their bodies as compared to other groups of girls continued exposure to unrealistic body types in the media affected the girls perceptions about what a normal, healthy human female body looks like. So again, it's the idea that the media is, is cultivating our understanding of reality, our expectations for self. And in this case, what a normal body looks like. And, and it's certainly the, I think that the, the evidence indicates that the case is stronger, uh, with, with females, but that you also see varying levels of this with, uh, with males as well, because yes. there's still, there's still very much this, uh, this vision of, uh, of what the perfect male body looks like, and it's out there, and it maybe isn't as, uh, um, it, it's not stressed as much as the female model, but it is there and there are people that, uh, that get been out of shape over it. I, uh, was actually talking about th- that we were preparing for
1: this episode with our colleagues, uh, from Stuff Mom Never Told You. Mm-hmm. And they mentioned to me, oh yeah, we've done, uh, episodes relating to this before. And they said, yeah, one study they came across, and I definitely would recommend going and, and seeking oh, out yeah. this podcast on their site, uh, found that the, exactly what you're talking about with television ads and comparison of body types is actually worse on Facebook for people because they're comparing their body types to people they know in the real world. And it's easier for them to create a disassociation it still happens mm-hmm. with a disassociation from models that they've never met before right. versus people in their real life when they're looking at their collections of photos. Mm. Okay. So, this all this stuff is going on we're all stressed out we're all anxious our self-esteem's low we're depressed we're trying to deal with it maybe social media is helping maybe it's making it worse what are some coping mechanisms
0: what can we do yeah i mean the the the, the terrible thing is that a lot of times the social media is the coping method because yeah. we have this environment and then something bad happens right there's a terrorist attack there's a mass shooting there's political unrest there's a disaster uh be it local or larger in scale, and we take to social media uh, I think one of the the best localized examples is that you uh, if, if you hear gunshots in your neighborhood you what do you do you in, uh, in around here, you often head to the local neighborhood association Facebook group and start asking questions hey what 's happening what 's going on Someone tell me yeah
1: i don't know about other cities, but here in Atlanta uh, and this is no slight to our news organizations. But we don't really have reliable news sources that can very quickly tell you what's happening on the ground, especially in your neighborhood.
0: Yeah, I mean, uh the the Atlanta Journal-Constitution is great, but they're not going to have an up-to-minute story about the noise you just heard exactly. to tell you that it was just a Transformer exploding. Especially, and and not a Transformer robot. Right. You mean, uh, <laughs> I would hope they would really pick up on Transformer <laughs> robot
1: stories. Uh, but this is especially true if you hear gunshots, which, unfortunately, I guess you're getting a little insight into what the neighborhoods are like that Robert and I live in. But... Uh, uh, for me personally, when we hear gunshots, we turn, like you said, to Facebook or uh, Nextdoor is the thing. And in fact, I f- I finally, after doing all the research on this, I was like, all right, I got to sign up for Nextdoor so I can go to my neighbors to find out information. Mm-hmm. And this is just one example of how social media is replacing our investment in journalism, right? right. We're defunding journalism and instead we're turning – again, like I called it user-generated content earlier – I don't know if my neighbor down the street actually knows if it's a gunshot or not, but I'm going to go to nextdoor.com and see what he has to say about it, you know. Yeah. Uh so yeah, it's it, it, it's
0: a confusing time. And all of this is coming from a biologically authentic place. We're biologically yeah. hardwired to try to understand and control our environment. We need to know what's happening. We need to know the extent of the threat to us personally, to our family, our friends, and to figure out what to do next. But it often means that, uh, in, in our media age, and this in, entails certainly television news as well as, uh, as social media, but we end up binging on the chaos, on yeah. the disturbing details, uh, you know, that often just come detail after detail, right? Uh, on, we also binge on the compassion that spins out of it, also on the hate that spins out of it. Uh, and all the while we're trying to we're absorbing the fear, the anxiety, the story, the violence, and it it, it brings it brings me back to to mean world syndrome, uh, which we mentioned earlier. So while while uh, Gerbner's work centered around TV, they, the internet is an even more powerful media font. Mm-hmm. It just accelerates the news fo- uh, cycle and allows uh, tidal pools of hermetically sealed extremism, overreaction, hate. Uh, <laughs> You can, you can, in a way, it's like a purification of it. It's, 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 uh, uh you know, completely distilled into a, a, a sticky paste. Yeah. Yeah. And out, outright false information, uh, served up hot and steaming, mm-hmm. you know, just the way we like it.
1: Yeah. As you mentioned at the beginning of the episode, this is a major debate that's going on through, uh, digital media news right now about the election in itself. Was it affected by mm-hmm. false news?
0: Yeah, and this is a top this is a topic that's it's being discussed right now. Even like Facebook is putting out new responses. So there's no way we're going to be up to the minute on this story. But uh I was just reading a New York Times article uh that, that, that came out in the wake of the election said that 44% of American voters used Facebook to get their news. And Facebook, uh, no matter, you know, no matter what else it is, it's important to realize that it is not a journalistic organization.
1: Yeah. I, re- I really want to spell this out, uh, for you out there. So our show, stuff to blow your mind, we're a part of a digital media organization. And in the last three years, we've had to, completely change our business approach because of the shift from what is called organic reach, which was basically like people going into Google and typing in stuff to blow your mind, social media, Mm -hmm. to social media reach. Most people are just getting their information from social media now rather than going out and searching for it. Like it or not, Facebook is not only changing the way that we're consuming news, but it's also changing the way that news is made, right? So think about these organizations like ours. In order to survive, they need to uh curate for that medium. And so they're doing a a variety of things to make them fit in better with Facebook, right? Uh, Think about this the next time that you click on a newsfeed in your article. And uh, also in that same vein, I'd like to remind you, this is why there is an industry for fake news sites. They can monetize the web traffic by manipulating the social media game. I'll tell you this, and Robert can too. It's a lot easier to write a fake news story or even a poorly reported news story than it is to do thoughtful research and critical evaluation. So for me personally, I'm always wary of any story that comes out super fast. Even, like I said, uh whether I'm looking on Facebook or, or next door or whatever, if it's some neighbor of mine and they're telling me something, I'm a little wary. Like, I don't know if that's 100% true. So, you know, give it some time uh we We expect to have all this knowledge all this information at our fingertips, like like we're genies or something uh and it's it's not that simple um so don't necessarily trust things that just immediately come out
0: yeah um such as and this is this is a real one I did not see this in my facebook uh, feed, but apparently um uh, leading up to the u s presidential election, stories were making their rounds that uh the pope uh as in the the head of the Catholic Church, yeah, I know that had guy. endorsed uh, Donald Trump for president. Yeah, I'm and, pretty uh, sure that's not true. <laughs> I, I, I don't believe it happened. Um, and uh, in the, according to a report uh, in BuzzFeed News, and I know just mentioning BuzzFeed News in this uh, conversation might uh, uh, be a little uh, tricky, but uh, there was a report that a bunch of uh, young people in a town in Macedonia – uh, ran more than 100 pro-Trump uh, uh, websites full of fake news yeah, in an, an attempt to, to uh, you know, manipulate uh, the U.S. Uh, presidential election. So there's all of this fake news out here, this misinformation yeah. that is being um, that, that is going through the the, the curator system. The curator is a business. Uh, the curator is not a journalistic uh, um, enterprise and uh and, and that can have some very um dire consequences so mark Zuckerberg in the past has claimed that that Facebook doesn't actually cause anyone to make up their minds and i'm and I'm not necessarily suggesting that's the case either here but Facebook's own research suggests that it's no mere neutral arbitrator in the trade of real or fake news.
1: Oh, yeah, sure. Well, especially, again, given the algorithm, we've sort of mentioned the algorithm equally. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, the algorithm of Facebook is designed to feed you what it thinks you want to see.
0: Yeah. And no matter where you stand politically, socially, uh, what have you, you've probably come up against the algorithm and ask, huh, why am I seeing this? Yeah. Why am I not seeing that? A uh, 2010 experiment with go vote boxes uh, with or without photos of friends who voted uh, is, is one of the uh, studies that comes up. The second version, the one with people, uh, actually turned out hundreds of thousands of, of voters in this uh, particular uh, exercise. Then in 2012, they secretly tweaked the news feed so that some users experienced slightly more positive or negative streams. Yeah. And the nature of those streams influenced the nature of the user's own posts. So sure, yeah. negativity begot negativity, positivity begot positivity, uh, which ties in with some of the things we've been discussing here. Yeah. Um, and I, I'm seeing this play out in my own Facebook feed
1: right now. There's a lot of people talking about the, uh, quote, echo chamber effect of so- social media, especially on Facebook, that could have contributed to decision making for the election. But also, uh, I believe it's the Wall Street Journal. Is that right? Who's created this filter that allows you to see what um, a Facebook feed would be like. If it was curated on like a quote-unquote liberal algorithm versus a conservative algorithm, hmm.
0: it's been shown up in my feed as well. Link's over to that. Oh, there's a piece that came out in the New York Times just last week. So I guess it'll be like two weeks ago by the time this episode comes out. And it's from uh, Zeynep Tufeki. And uh, Tufeky writes – And the dangers of Facebook's current setup are not limited to the United States. The effects can be even more calamitous in countries with fewer checks and balances and weaker institutions and independent media. In Myanmar, for example, misinformation on Facebook has reportedly helped fuel ethnic cleansing, creating an enormous refugee crisis. Facebook may want to claim that it is remaining neutral, but that is a false and dangerous stance. The company's business model, algorithms and policies entrench echo chambers and fuel the spread of misinformation. Mm. I mean, that
1: that really strikes you right there. Like, it's one thing to say, like, oh, well, this, quote, echo chamber uh, affected how people voted. But then when you th- hear, well, this could have affected ethnic
0: cleansing. Yeah. You know, I mean, that's heartbreaking. Yeah. Yeah. In December of 2014, uh, Will Ormus of Slate reached out to uh, Facebook about the spread of false information on Facebook and uh, reported the following. Quote, I ran this idea by Greg Mara, a Facebook newsfeed product manager, in a recent conversation about another of the company's efforts to improve the quality of users' feeds. He sounded vaguely intrigued, but said his team probably wouldn't be making it a priority anytime soon. Uh, quote, we haven't tried to do anything around objective truth. Mara mused. It's a complicated topic and probably not the first thing we would bite off. Hmm. So, yeah, objective truth. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Why? Why get involved in that? Uh, and then uh, I also ran across an excellent piece in Ian magazine from Liz Lenz, and uh, they shared the following quote. Facts are at our fingertips, but instead of liberating us, they seem to become a casualty in the war of ideas. My husband has an aphorism that states if you Google long enough, anything becomes the truth. <laughs> That's nice. I like that. <laughs>
1: Uh, and none of this even takes into account the rise of bullying and trolling on social media. We're just talking about the mental health issues yeah. that are brought to it originally, not even the ones that are that are coming out of it. The majority of those on social media are under 30 years old, and most of those are adolescent. Now, the Enough is Enough organization reports that 95 percent of teenagers who have used social media have witnessed Cyberbullying, and I just want to give a personal aside about our work. This isn't a sob story, but, um, given what we do and how, uh, Facebook and Twitter and YouTube all play into our, you know, our business, not just stuff to blow your mind, but how stuff works in general. We see a lot of cyberbullying and trolling, especially targeted at our hosts on various shows, uh, video, Uh, definitely on Facebook Mm -hmm. and it's, um, it's tough, you know, and it's, it's something that kind of comes along with this gig that not a lot of people think about, like the emotional toll of constantly seeing people tell you, uh, I don't like the way you move your hands or your hair is stupid. These are things that I get as a man. Our female colleagues get horrific abuse, Mm -hmm. uh, by trolls on the internet. now. How do you cope with that? How do you cope with all of this? I often say like, man, I wish we just had like a a a, a counselor Troy here in the <laughs> office that we could go to to talk about this stuff. Um, is it realistic to just go completely cold turkey off of social media? Well, after the election, the Seattle Times actually interviewed uh one of their local mental health counselors and several social media experts for how you can set boundaries. So these are a couple of things. And I'm also going to add in here that the American Psychological Association says that 52% of adults expressed that they felt stress related to the campaign. If that is the case, experts then recommend limiting social media engagement and definitely limiting engagement with the 24 hour news cycle. But Hey, like we said before, some people turn to social media for support or to offer it, especially for those who are already suffering from addiction, depression, or anxiety, right? So here's a couple tips. One is ask yourself if you really need to log in, right? I found myself doing this today where I was just like sitting there kind of hanging out with my dogs and I I popped Twitter on and I was like, I don't need to do that. I'm just, I'm just doing it out of habit.
0: Well, login is an interesting thing to bring up here because login and, and it brings brings to mind the idea that you're actually inputting your password. That yeah. you're you're sticking a key into the the horrible box that you keep under your bed. <laughs> um, uh, and either uh, either way, like this this decision to unlock it is is in play. Yeah. But for the most part, like our, our browsers remember our passwords. It's like the, it's just this thing you do. I mean, how many times have have, uh, have, have you, the, the, the listeners, uh, found yourself just at the site that you go to every day? It's just like a muscle memory thing. And then yeah. you're there, you're reading it, and you're like, what am I even doing here? I was here five minutes ago, there's not even any new content to look at. Exactly, yeah. Uh, so th- just think to yourself, and I've
1: been doing this in the last couple of weeks, maybe there's something else you can do, right? For instance, I've been listening to music a lot more. Oh, yeah. Uh, rather than going onto social media, I, uh, I finally invested in one of those subscription services, and I'm just listening to a lot of new music and listening to a lot of music, old music from when I was a teenager that I don't have anymore. And yeah. it, it's just been uh, – that's been very helpful. Maybe you could play a video game, you know, uh, w- or, hey, here's a novel idea, exercise, <laughs> uh, uh, or Call a friend up, you know? Uh, I have a friend... A number of these can be done at the same time. Uh, yeah, I mean, I could uh, play video games and talk to my friends at the same time. That's op- often how I do <laughs> have phone calls with them. Uh, but, uh you know... It, so that's one thing is like just always, you know, ask yourself, do I need to be doing this? Then here's the thing. If you're still going to use electronic devices, prioritize which sites are important to you and then set a time limit for yourself to log off. Don't just scan. We're, we I do this so often, mm-hmm. especially given the nature of our work where I'm just scrolling and scrolling and scrolling and looking for the next fix. Yeah. Right? Uh, I'd also throw in turn off those updates if you don't. (laughs) Oh, I've already. Yeah, I don't have any of that stuff. Uh, Decide how much time in your day is devoted to consuming news in whatever form, whether that's social media or on television. If you're really committed to getting a fix of news, look for well-written, well-reported articles, especially by someone who has views that oppose your own. Okay, try thinking from another person's perspective. Even if you totally disagree with them, if it's well-written enough, it'll at least give you pause for consideration. Uh, also, decide what to keep out of your feed, right? Skip past the disturbing images or video uh, stuff that's in your feed. Acknowledge that some people are more important to you than others, so you know who to respond to and who to ignore, and you can always, as I mentioned at the top, as I do, quietly unfollow or unfriend people. I use lists for this on Twitter. It's great. Cure eight year feed. You become responsible for it yourself.
0: And it's um, it's just better for your mental health overall. Yeah. And I, I want to drive home too that. Again, remember that the person that a, an individual is online on Facebook, it's not the, the sum total of who they are. That's no. just one aspect of their person. And so they're. There there may be situations where you say, you know, I'm I'm still totally friends with this person, but you know, maybe all they do is share uh turnip recipes on mm-hmm. their Facebook and you love them, but you're just not into turnips. And you're not into turnip recipes. Yep. So maybe this is just not the platform where your friendship exists. I absolutely
1: have relationships like that. Uh and look, if you've got to engage with people, try to do it positively. Either like those other people's posts or share something that you found inspiring. If it's a political matter, try using a neutral tone. I know it's tough right now. I know it's real easy to say that and it's difficult, but present evidence-based information in your posts or, Hey, here's something you could do. Get involved in constructive causes by signing petitions or writing letters or calling politicians or or getting involved with some local group that you support. Uh, the first thing that I saw when I um, joined Nextdoor this morning was mm-hmm. that there was a long post of my neighbors talking about, hey, what local groups can I go out and volunteer for and get involved? Like, I feel like I need to do something.
0: Yeah, and that allows you to act, to do to, to actually act uh, from, from a position of uh, – of, uh, of 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 optimism. Yeah, you know? because yeah. it's it's difficult to to act from a state of pessimism.
1: And the last coping mechanism I would say is don't let yourself start worrying about something that may not have actually even happened. Remember what we said here about false news and rumors that spread real easily on social media? It so people have researched this, it can take 14 hours to debunk false claims online. So Wait before you get angry. Come back, do some research, look into whether this is a real thing or not, and then move forward and engage. Now, let's take this and flip it on its head. What if we used social media as a data mining tool? to assist psychologists in community health forecasts. Well, that is something that a a project called the World Wellbeing Project is talking about doing. They've evaluated a 100 million tweets, and they found that the preponderance of negative tweets, especially those with anger or hostility linked in them, reliably predicts a rise in deaths from heart disease in their given locations. That's crazy to me that they can look at Twitter Mm -hmm. and say, well, the – Death rates going to
0: increase, I don't know, in Chicago or something like that. Well, it's not surprising. I, I want to say there was a I, I wish I had the study in front of me, but I mm. believe there was a German study years back looking at like high uh, engagement soccer games or football. Oh, games yeah. And in uh, looking at rises in heart attacks or heart conditions sure. around that, just the idea that here's this thing that everyone's uh, a number, a large section of the population are invested in. It's ri- ri- raising everybody's blood, uh, their heart rate. And there are going to be physical uh, ramifications of that.
1: Yeah. Google has also tried doing this in a similar way with flu symptoms. Um, So they track in real time the emergence of flu outbreaks. They tried doing this and they stopped. But what if we could apply machine learning methods to determine areas where stress, anxiety, and depression are breaking out? We could provide those areas with more assistance,
0: theoretically. So could we end up in a situation where... Uh negative too too much negativity on social media it causes the medibots to come to your house maybe yeah and they start administering they uh, give you stim packs Cures. yeah <laughs> um
1: okay so we've gone over a lot of stuff with you all in this episode let's extrapolate what we've learned here and take what's going on in the world right now with social media and and just you know what did we get out of this Well, first of all, Facebook could be altering our perceptions of people and the world, right? And in the sense that we may not be getting the full story
0: through social media. And, uh, you know, beyond mere perception, uh, there's an ongoing conversation. To what extent is Facebook empowering the dissemination of of false information, building – at times, dangerous perceived realities for its users. Again, this is something that is an ongoing conversation, and this episode is not going to be standing on the cutting edge of that, as there's a a, a week delay in it coming out. Uh, And look, if you're already anxious,
1: using social media could make your self-esteem even worse. So consider that before you hop on. But Positive feedback to political posts is only going to reinforce your own beliefs. So it's less likely to challenge you to think from someone else's perspective. And this, in turn, from what we learned, becomes addictive in how it forms our worldviews. So we're combining our political, philosophical society with Pavlov's reward system. Mm-hmm. And that seems dangerous.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It does. (laughs) Um, as a final note, uh, my personal advice, get a fish tank. Fish tanks are great. They're so soothing. They're so great. That does sound nice. I don't know how I've been living this long without a fish tank in my life, but I'm loving it. (laughs) So, uh,
1: here on Stuff to Blow Your Mind, we wanted to uh, take this opportunity uh, to advocate for a group that would be related to this, an organization ourselves that we looked into and that we feel like we'd like to support. And the one that we found for this episode is called Stomp Out Bullying, and they're a group that is the leading national Bullying and cyberbullying prevention organization for kids and teens in the United States. They focus on reducing and preventing these things, as well as sexting and other digital abuse. Uh, they educate, educate against homophobia, racism, and hatred. Uh, decrease school absenteeism and deter violence in schools. Online and in communities across the country, um, we were looking at this this morning, and it seemed like a great way to, you know, if you're feeling I need to do something, this is this is something to take a look at. They've got seven ways that you can make a difference by by you know working together with their group. Of course, the easy way is you can donate, uh, give them money. Uh, you can also participate in their campaigns. They have these various campaigns that help with bullying prevention. Um, they have an online store. Where you can shop and that's kind of like combining the donation with uh, getting something that you can, I don't know, wear or give to somebody else out in the real world. You can also volunteer. Uh, they actually have a, a help chat line and peer mentoring groups in schools to help raise awareness about bullying. So you, maybe you want to participate that way. And then finally, they partner with corporations, media, and celebrities uh, it, to end bullying. So, if you're uh, any of those three things—if you're a corporation, a, me- a media entity, or a celebrity of some kind—maybe you want to participate in this.
0: Yeah, yeah. So, they seem like a really good group. They're doing a lot of good work. So, we wanted to highlight them here real quick, and we would—we'd uh, like to do more of this in the future. So, uh, if there are any uh, uh, worthy causes out there, uh groups, nonprofits that are engaged in some real, you know, positive efforts in the world. Let us know about them. Yeah. And uh and and we're gonna we're gonna try and make this a, a regular thing here on the show. And uh, here's the irony of it. How do you let us know
1: about it? Well, <laughs> social media. Uh, yes. uh so yeah, we're on Facebook, we're on Twitter, we're on Tumblr, and we're on Instagram. We are trying to make those positive places. Uh we do we sometimes do live video performances where we talk about um monster movie trailers and yeah. how they relate to the science that we talk about on the show. Sometimes we share links to things that we're pretty excited about. Uh, sometimes we just share, I don't know, I, I like to take photos of bizarre things that I find while we're doing research to give people a hint as to what's coming up on the show. But those are all places where you can reach out to us to talk to us about um what we're doing on the show, provide us with some feedback, or like Robert said, tell us about another organization that maybe we can promote here. Uh, the Uh All those are in some way or another blow the mind
0: yes and hey if you want to cut all that out just come straight to stuff to blow your mind dot com yep a social media free website a celebration of everything we do all the episodes the podcast the blog post you name it it's there there will also be links out to our social media accounts but you don't have to click on those you really don't yeah and finally there is an old fashioned way to get in touch with us uh and I'm not talking about finding us on the street and talking to us though I I, I guess that would work they can use ravens ravens yes owls um, (laughs) (laughs) whatever you have at your disposal. But yeah, there's the email address. Yeah, that's BlowTheMind at HowStuffWorks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com.